This episode of Paper Team is brought to you by Roadmap Writer's Jumpstart Writing Competition. The competition is open to both original TV pilots and feature scripts with a panel of 12 industry judges from top companies including Circle of Confusion, Echo Lake Entertainment, Verve, Mosaic, Bronze Studios, and more. To learn more and check out their incredible prize packages, visit RoadmapWriters.com and choose Jumpstart from the competitions tab. Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Colin. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And today we're going to be talking about tips and tricks for TV writing. From productivity to draft, characters, and dialogue, we're going to be troubleshooting a lot of the common problems people run into when writing their scripts and how you can work through those successfully. Welcome to our Paper Tease segment. We did mention in PT91, the first Paper Tease of June, that we would do our next session and reveal the winners in our next week's episode, PT94. But due to some schedule rejiggering, we're actually moving it to one earlier, which is right now. Today, we are covering two new teasers, both of which you can find in the show notes of this episode at paperteam.co slash 93. All right, what is our first teaser for the week? Alright, so our first teaser is called Duende by Matt Sorensen, and it's a drama. In this teaser, two young girls in Mexico in 1937 run off to play outside their mother's farm. They wander too far, and Juana loses her sister, Sofia. Uh, a creepy voice speaks to Juana from the bushes, asking her to come and play and offering her toys and dolls if she comes closer. As she's about to go into the bush, her mother shows up and collects her daughters, mad at them that they ran away. And then later that night, Juana awakes in her bedroom to a strange gnawing sound and sees something under the covers near her sister's feet. This thing smiles and its yellow teeth are dripping with blood. It puts a finger to its lips and tells her to be quiet. What did you think about this one, Alex? I actually liked the Duende teaser a lot. I thought the mood and tone set were really vivid. The imagery, I thought, was also very evocative. And the ambiance, I think, is very effective at conveying this thread. And it kind of reminded me of the opening for the newer movie, It, which I consider to be one of the best openings to a horror movie in quite a while. But maybe it is too close to it. What are your thoughts? Yeah, it does feel a little bit like the elephant in the room here that the scene is quite close to the one from It. Uh, it's such an iconic scene, too, that it's hard not to notice. Now, I'm not sure whether this was a deliberate homage or just unwitting parallel thinking, but I would maybe just take a look at that and then reread your script and just maybe see if there are some ways you can change the elements to make it seem a little more unique to you. And, and there are just such specific details, too, about how the creature wants to play with her. And they mentioned something about like playing like up here instead of like down here so it's just kind of like strange little parallels offering toys to come into the bush instead of you know a drain and then the whole teeth thing and the gnawing of, of a limb of all that kind of thing so i think it's there's a way to pay homage to it without being too close but to me it's maybe erring a little bit on the line of too close right now my other sort of big thought on the script was that some of the prose felt dense uh, especially if you look at for example that opening paragraph i thought that was a, kind of this huge block of text and you do want to ease the reader into the read you can easily break it down based on visuals or information you want us to understand yeah there was a certain point where the mothers were explaining how far away the daughter should be from the house until it's not safe anymore and it involved this kind of like imagery of the mother putting her finger together with her thumb to make a circle to see how far away the house would be in the distance and it was just like it was a big paragraph to try and describe this concept when the mother could have been like don't get too far away like it, to me it wasn't super important how that was or, or at least it could have been described in a slightly neater manner yeah i agree to some extent i mean i do like the visual of it so my advice would not be to cut it outright however 
that prose, that paragraph, that description about the finger moving and, and describing far away the house is, is repeated again a few paragraphs later. So that could definitely be shortened or cut. So that's kind of my takeaway for the prose is that it could be shortened and broken up much more easily than it currently is. Yeah, I, I agree. It should stay in there. It is a cool visual, but just finding a way to explain it more effectively would be great. In terms of the dialogue, for me, some of the dialogue between the kids and the mother, especially later in the script, felt a little kind of obvious at times or could have had a bit more nuance. Like we already know that they went too far away from the house and that she asked them not to do that. So she doesn't have to say that to them again when she shows up. You know, we already know that she's mad at them and she's going to bring them back home. So just finding those opportunities to have a little bit more nuance and subtext in the dialogue when the audience is already aware and you don't need to kind of repeat those things over. And on that dialogue, I have one comment uh, regarding the specifics of saying in the prose, all dialogues in Spanish. And this may be a polarizing comment, but I don't believe there's really a need in the prose in this specific teaser to specify that all dialogue is in Spanish. And here's why. Now, a few weeks ago, we had a teaser which contained Russian language. And one of our comments on that teaser was to verbalize in the prose that these characters were in fact speaking Russian to clarify it for the reader. The key difference here though is that for all we know, the entirety of Duende, one assumes, has all the dialogue in Spanish. That is what the prose currently states. Not all the dialogue in a few scenes, not specific Spanish dialogue in a few scenes, or specific dialogue said by specific characters. This is all the dialogue by all the characters in all the scenes. So specifying that all dialogue across the board is in Spanish isn't really useful information for the reader because there isn't a delineation against other languages present in the dialogue. This is taking place in Mexico and it looks like the entire script will feature everyone speaking the same language. In my mind, there isn't any other language to contrast it against. Now, with all that said, where those specifics would matter would be if you are actively pitching the show and selling it to specific buyers. But as far as I know, there isn't a mainstream American network broadcasting a show entirely in another language language than English. So in other words, this really would probably have to be some kind of international production. But again, the element of the language is only relevant when you're trying to sell, not really as a sample for the read. There's a certain shorthand in which English is a stand-in for other languages when perhaps the entire thing is going to be uh, set in Mexico in 1937, if that's the case, then if this is an American production, the characters are probably going to be speaking English, maybe with an accent or something, and that's the shorthand so that the American audience can understand it more clearly if you're not changing between different locations and languages and things like that. Um, so that's entirely possible as well. Is there anything on the, the micro side on the page? My macro micro thought is really relating to slug lines. I thought that the slug lines could be much clearer and much more specific. And on the flip side, some of the slug lines add information that isn't necessary. So for example, on page two, the slug line reads, exterior, outside the farm property, approximately one hour later. Now the one hour later isn't relevant in the slug line. If you wanna add it as a chiron of some sort, that's fine. But really, within the slug line, it's not really irrelevant information. And similarly, saying outside the farm property is redundant since you have exterior. So that's kind of already stated there. Yeah, I think unless the, the fact that it was exactly an hour is relevant, then it's not needed. And in the story, it wasn't. She wasn't like, be back in exactly one hour and we cut to three hours later or something like that. I guess that the outside the farm property is just distinguishing the fact that they've left the house and gone outside. But again, we already knew that. So just watching out for that repetitiveness so that what is the bare minimum information we need to communicate our ideas clearly. So what makes us want to read on from this teaser versus not? 
like I said, I, I thought Duende had a very effective teaser. There's this suspenseful thread as the story progresses, and the backdrop is also very interesting and unique. It's also the right kind of intrigue for me. But my one bump is, again, how close to it the teaser is. So we can only judge those elements based on those few pages. So it's hard for me to tell. Yeah, for sure. I think despite that, I do still feel compelled to read on and see what happened, you know, to this girl's sister. Curious if we're going to flash forward to present day and show, you know, Juana now older, or, you know, is she the grandma of a, a new main character, or, or are these other people returning to the same place where the monster lives? That would be uh, it part two. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I think it was effective in creating that mystery and that intrigue and threat around the creature enough for me to want to see what happens next and, and where this is all going. Great. All right, let's move on to our second teaser of the week, which is called American Monarchy by Bo Liu and Nick Ruck, and that is a drama. And in the teaser, a series of video clips reveal an alternate history where George Washington was crowned king, then abdicated to another king from the Mason family. We then go to an open square in this alternate Washington Mason DC where protesters are gathered to demand fair taxes. Among them, we find Yan, who is joined by her friend Ted. The royal carriage arrives at the square and Yan inadvertently falls in front of it. Prince Winston Mason steps out to help her in a Cinderella-esque moment, but in reality, the prince is only acting princely for the cameras and is mean to Yen in private. As the royals roll out, a rogue protester escalates the tension, leading to guards and police storming into them. Yen is knocked out, Ted tries to grab her, and the queen witnesses the ordeal, but does not intervene. What are your thoughts on American Monarchy? I think this is a really cool concept and setting in terms of alternate history. I think it's something that's uh, definitely worthwhile exploring. Uh, I, I will say that the introductory video clips that, that seem to explain this alternate history of America, we could have spent more time on that and had a more detailed explanation. I think in a high concept like this, you get a bit of a free pass to get some exposition out in this way, as long as it's interesting, which I think this idea of how America could have become a monarchy is. Right now, we kind of blow through these videos, and I was left feeling more confused than informed. I definitely agree that in terms of world building, you could have a more powerful opener to really explain what is going on. And you could, I would actually advocate outright stating it in the prose. So for example, when it says the park and street are decorated with the kingdom of American flags, you could easily add a version of this is a bad pitch, but yes, this is an alternate history of the US where Washington abdicated to a king and blah, blah, blah. You could go all out and really state it in the pro so we really get it. But as it stands, the alternate history portion is very briefly mentioned in those video clips and that montage, but it isn't even emphasized within that prose. Also, I'm unclear about the history of it. Was George Washington crowned as a king from the get-go? How did that work? And all those elements are by themselves, wait what moments that I really wanted more information about. Yeah, I mean, you could even put uh, title cards explaining this stuff and people would forgive you because it is such a high concept to, necessary to explain. So I think that, you know, I think people get worried about putting too much exposition in in that way and then people being like, oh, no, this is too much. But at the same time, you can go back too far the other way. I actually recommend the opener for the NBC show Kings, which did kind of a similar premise featuring a modern monarchy and how they handled their exposition of that world in a very efficient way. 
I think when you don't have a clear explanation of that exposition in some other way, it, it leads to it coming out in dialogue in sometimes kind of a clunky way. Like there are a few lines here that are like uh, someone says, this whole elective monarchy system is just a giant illusion. What's the point when the queen makes the final decision anyway? And someone else says, it'll be fun to watch since the last election was 20 years ago. These are things that the characters do already know, and there's no clear reason for them to be saying them to each other in these circumstances. So I would have rather seen that on a title card than uh, coming out of these characters' mouths. And in terms of the framing of the teaser itself, I personally didn't feel that the opener was fully leaning into what makes this world so unique and specifically why we are following Jan and Ted as characters. Because in terms of the characters, just based on the teaser itself, Prince Mason is intrinsically more interesting the way he's presented by appearing princely at first, but actually just doing it for the camera. So that's a more interesting turn than either Yan or Ted have within that opener. Yeah, I think if you gave us more reason for us to be on the side of our protagonists here, it's like maybe knowing secretly that they're here to sabotage the thing or something like that is going to happen, it would get us more on their side. And uh, I do think you're right in terms of the things that, that make this unique and interesting were a little too undersold. As in the description, to me, the compelling stuff were these little details, like the flag being uh, red and white stripes, but a symbol of a white crown and an eagle in a field of blue replacing the stars. You know, I would like to see a little bit more of that. What are the Royal Guards uniforms like? What does the cityscape of this place look like in this alternate history? Uh, obviously, you don't want to overdo it, but you really need to capitalize on the uniqueness of your setting in your world. And also, I kind of wanted more of a climax. The, the tension comes to a boil with the police being unleashed on the protesters but what is sort of our powerful image out of the teaser uh, so as it currently stands you do have yen being hit and knocked out while ted tries to grab her and pull her away you gotta make us feel that moment and really to me that's the most compelling emotional drive of that teaser assuming they are actually the leads and assuming they're going to be the driving force of the story and not the queen. I think ending on them being pummeled or a version of that is more interesting and makes us more curious about the continuation. Uh, what about on the micro level on the page? Once again, please be consistent about capitalization. So for example, on the first page, royal guards and street police should be capitalized because they're a group of people and also you're already capitalizing protesters. So why one and not the other? That's a question. Overall for me, I thought the writing on the page was pretty good. The, the short action lines and the use of white space uh, really helped me flow through it. So I was pretty happy with them. Agreed. And what makes us want to read on versus not? So I think a little bit like what you were saying just before, the scene felt underutilized as an opener. We see the royals, we see the protests, but there didn't seem to be that clear dramatic question or answer. Uh, like you were saying, even Jan getting knocked out didn't really feel like a big deal to me or that she was truly in danger. It wasn't highlighted on the page. So perhaps something else like her getting arrested and having a bag thrown over her head and taken away by police or something would have done that more effectively. That makes me wonder, oh, what's happening? What's going to go on with her rather than just, oh, she's knocked out. She'll probably wake up in a minute and be fine. You know, it just kind of makes me ultimately wonder what the point of the scene was and how that could have been achieved more effectively, especially to make us want to read on. Yeah, it's interesting. I feel there's a lot of opportunity and options here. The backdrop is interesting. The history has built in conflict. But I think we both want more drama to be milked out of that premise and specifically offer some kind of opening that could only take place in that specific environment and with these specific characters in that specific moment. And to me, if those issues are addressed, then there's a lot of potential. 
Yeah, that's a great point. I think that you could probably open just about any drama that involves political dissent and whatever with a scene like this. But what is it about this world and this setting that will allow you to show an audience something they've never seen before? Oh, Trump not being president for one. Right? <laughs> all right. Do we have any overall macro thoughts about all the teasers that we talked about this month? Yeah, looking back on everything, for me, the big takeaway from this month is just making sure that your opening scene is a compelling scene with a, a clear dramatic question that is addressed in some way. What do each of these characters want? What's stopping them from getting it? Uh, how does it all resolve in a way that leaves the door open to want to read on? I think it's easy to fall into this trap of writing a scene to service something you want to establish, like a setting or a character relationship, and forgetting that it still needs to be a scene that works in and of itself. Yeah, for me, the takeaway this month is that we really need to lean into the point of the teaser. A teaser is a peek into the world, right? It's a very tiny window into what is hopefully a luscious and fertile landscape of stories. So make sure those first two pages give the reader that need, that desire to want to keep reading. And that is why it is called a teaser. You got to give this concise idea of what this show is about in an evocative and unique way, which also begs for the next part of the story to be told. Yeah, exactly. And when in doubt, when we're choosing the winners of these, we do go for the most effective teaser. Even if a script excerpt may have any number of other merits, like a great concept or a really good dialogue, you know, the goal here is to create a compelling teaser that makes people want to read the rest of the script. And on that, let's crown the two June winners of our Paper Tease contest, who will each be awarded a free month of the Roadmap Writers Premium Writers Network, a $69 value. Nice. So this is a month-long program that will grant the writer one open pitch session, and they can choose from dozens of execs to pitch their project to. They get a live online elevator pitch to three execs in an online roundtable setting, four educational webinars, one private logline review with Roadmap's Director of Writer Outreach, uh, one group pitch prep webinar with literary manager Chris Deckard, a fictional entity, and one interactive webinar with Roadmap's Creative Director on a behind-the-scenes look at the industry. So it's a lot of value just for sending in your teaser for free and seeing what happens. All right, let's uh, crown them winners. Let's roll the drums. And the first winner is Figments by Dustin Penny. Congratulations. Well done, Dustin. And our second winner is Duende by Matt Sorensen. Good job, Matt. Yay. All right. All right. Enjoy those prizes. We're on the lookout for our next month's teaser. So send them in, and we can't wait to check them out. At paperteam.co slash teaser. And now let's get on with the episode. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about, first of all, productivity and the act of writing. So let's say you can't find the time or don't really have the discipline to write. How do I solve that issue? So one tip or trick that you could work with on that is setting a specific time on your calendar to write, just like it was any other appointment or meeting, like a dentist's thing or a lunch. You know, I think if you just have a vague idea that you want to write today or you need to get some writing done, it'll probably never get done because all that other stuff is just going to keep getting in the way during your day. I would also say, especially if you're not currently working in an industry job that's a great advice to schedule something on the calendar so that actually you're putting something proactively there as an appointment to do it. So I definitely agree. Absolutely. Another tip or trick could be to make a time to write with a friend at a coffee shop or getting together at their house or something like that. Kind of like a gym buddy, you know, keep each other accountable. And as a bonus, you kind of have someone there to bounce ideas off if you get stuck. It's funny because this, I feel like it'd be a little bit a hit or miss depending on your own style of writing. Personally, I prefer to write alone and avoid any distractions. But that said to that idea, you can also force yourself to write by creating deadlines, whether it's writing groups, competitions, or through your reps like agents and managers. 
Absolutely. Uh, another really useful thing is to set yourself a clear writing goal. For example, today I'm going to write five pages of my script, rather than just this nebulous goal of today I'm going to write. You know, that way it's measurable and you can feel like you've actually accomplished something tangible at the end of the day. It's like breaking a task down step by step. You know, it's such a big task to go and clean your entire room, but if you just do the desk now and then the next, you know, the bed and then that kind of thing, eventually it just becomes so much easier because it's piece by piece and you feel like you're getting something done rather than just being overwhelmed. Yeah, I definitely agree with that sentiment. And in fact, we'll talk about it uh, more in a second. The idea that something granular and actionable is always better than something intangible. And to that, uh, we recommend our PT6 episode that breaks down in great details each step of the TV running process. So you don't just have to start with a blank page, but actually uh, formulate an idea, then go to outline and, and see that whole process from the top. All right, so what if your problem is that you are sitting down to write, but you're getting distracted and you're procrastinating or you just can't concentrate on what you're doing? Well, I'm a big fan of the Pomodoro technique, which is something I've mentioned multiple times in this podcast. And the original idea is to essentially get, let's say, a kitchen timer and divide your workload into 30-minute sections with 25 minutes of straight work and five minutes of break. And you can rinse and repeat that process. The Pomodoro technique for me has been the best way of dividing a script into those actionable chunks that we just mentioned. Uh, so let's say you're running a one-hour drama that is about 40 scenes or five acts, and you're in crunch time, and you only have a week to write your vomit draft. Depending on the scene, you could calculate that you'll need between, let's say, 15 to 25 minutes to bang out a rough version of that scene. So you can multiply that by the number of scenes, and you get about, let's say, 13 to 15 hours to produce an entire one-hour script, only 15 hours to produce an entire one-hour script. And whether you divide that workload across the entire week, or you can just bang it out within a day, you have a clear roadmap to follow. You probably won't be producing some Emmy-winning screenplay within that time, but the goal is to get something done, not something great. So one thing I find helpful when I'm procrastinating or getting distracted is turning off your internet or your phone, making it just even one or two steps harder to click and get that instant gratification or distraction of Facebook or Instagram or Twitter can really help. Uh, you know, if you have to go those extra steps and turn your Wi-Fi back on on your computer, wait for it to connect, open your browser, then go to Facebook rather than just switching over to a tab, I think you're more likely to catch yourself and go, oh, I should actually get back to my work. Yeah, and to that, there are actually a few Chrome extensions that allow you to process that blocking of I'll only allow myself, let's say, 15 minutes a day on Facebook.com. And uh, once you reach that threshold, then Chrome will block you from Facebook. All so right. there's That's a cool free useful. tools. Nice. And another little thing, it's super obvious, but stay hydrated, caffeinated, and fed. You know, keep some snacks nearby, have a bottle of water, take little short breaks and toilet breaks. It's basic stuff, but you'd be surprised how distracted you can get from being hungry or how tired you can get from being dehydrated. And it is very easy to lose track of time when you're writing. So what if your problem is that you're sitting there, you're writing, you're not on Facebook, but you just get stuck on the page. You can't find that next word or next sentence. The most obvious advice that we can give you is give yourself permission to suck. Write that vomit draft. Vomit on the page. There's a reason why it's <laughs> called a vomit draft. It's far easier to edit something that you've actually written than generating material off a blank page. And a lot of people, ourselves including, often block themselves overthinking every little detail. Perfect is the enemy of good, which is the enemy of done. So give yourself permission to suck. 
Absolutely. And so a few little tricks that I find help me when I'm stuck on the page like that is just straight out writing the subtext or the bad version of a line of dialogue or even an action if you're, you're stuck on that. Exactly like Alex is saying, it's better to have something that's bad that you can improve rather than just spend 20 minutes trying to find the perfect way for someone to say this line. And even if that dialogue, for example, isn't that great, and, and writing a version where the subtext is made text allows you to find that dynamic at play and the characters interplaying with one another. So that's definitely helpful on that level. Yeah, it's important to know that no one has to read it unless you show it to them. Like these rough drafts, no one else ever has to see it except for you. So feel okay with it being bad on the page for now. Except that Trojan horse I have in your computer where I can see everything inside. <laughs> You've been keylogging all of my scripts, Alex. <laughs> exactly. Nice. And then another little thing you can do is just, if you're stuck, leave it and move on to the next scene or or the next line or whatever it happens to be, I find it helps to put a little star or a placeholder that I can come back to. Or I can control F and search my script for all the stars or the places that I had to leave. You know, that's why you have an outline in the first place so that you can jump around if you need to and then just come back to it with fresh eyes in an hour or the next day or the next week. Yeah, everyone has kind of their preferred order to writing those scenes. Some write better linearly. I'm a person who likes to kind of jump around. And sometimes it's easier to write all the way through from a certain character's thread. Uh, you could spend a whole day writing one act or spend a whole day writing the A story or spend another day writing all the scenes involving specific characters. Whatever order you choose, try to keep your own momentum and excitement up. Feel free to write the amazing scenes you're hyped about first today and then tomorrow. Tomorrow, you'll be excited about writing something completely different, another completely different scene. Maybe it's the last scene that gets you up in the morning and you want to get that off your mind first before you start with the opening scene. That's totally fine. Whatever works for you is best. Yeah, there's no right or wrong way to do it as long as it gets done eventually. All right, so now we're going to take a look at some bigger picture, big idea, macro uh, issues and problems that you might run into. So the first one of those is, what if you're having trouble coming up with ideas in the first place? Well, I like to do a lot of background processing, which is basically an excuse to not do work. But sometimes you do really need to sit and let ideas sort of marinate in your brain. Much like vomit drafts, you can allow yourself to create a file or a folder with just piles of nonsense ideas. Maybe it's even a physical notebook you can carry around or just a notepad text file on your computer. And to generate ideas, you could also create your own story mind map. And mind maps are diagrams used to visually organize information. So if you're more visually inclined, that's a great way to brainstorm not just ideas, but concepts around those ideas and expand outward. For example, the center of the map could be your log line or your theme. And then from there, you branch out with branches within them being individual people and their traits. While another branch could be the story with branches into the ABC thread. Yeah, I definitely do a similar thing, maybe just a lot less organized than Alex. So just that idea of a, a, a brainstorm or an idea dump, like keeping that note file on your computer or a notebook if you like to work like that, and then just writing down your ideas when you have them, when you come across them in the world, and then that way you've always got something to go back to. But even when you are coming up with ideas for a specific project or something that you can latch onto, just write whatever comes to mind. Like, don't be precious about it. Put it down in a way, I guess it's like a vomit draft, but it's the step before that. Vomit uh, ideas. Vom vomit, uh, <laughs> yeah, vomit storm. 
Vomit thoughts. <laughs> I'll vomit all the time. <laughs> and another thing that I like to do that I find helps come up with cool ideas is just think about interesting contradictions or paradoxes or ironies, whether that's within the concept itself or the character or the world, things like that. You know, let's look at some examples. Blade is a vampire who must hunt other vampires. And he's also half human and half vampire, which represents that kind of contradiction within him. So, you know, baking that conflict into a concept or a character is automatically compelling. It raises questions and it suggests story potential. Well, let's say you do find that premise and that concept, but somehow it's not very exciting. How do you solve that issue? One little tip that I like to do there is just asking what ifs. What could you change? What little thing could you possibly tweak to make this more interesting or different from what we've seen before to get away from those cliches? Sometimes the smaller, the better. You know, think about questions like, what if we had the power to control the genetic properties of our unborn children, hair color, eye color, gender, health? Uh, how would that change the world? And then you get Gattaca, which was an amazing movie. What if everyone suddenly became infertile and the human race only had 60 to 80 years left to live? That's a new kind of version of like a post-apocalyptic world and that gives us children of men another brilliant story now what if a lawyer couldn't tell a lie that's liar liar what if rob schneider was a stapler etc oh well i don't think that concept is very promising <laughs> no that's fine. obviously a joke but yeah just those like find that one tiny thing that could change in a world or a person or whatever it happens to be and see where your mind takes you you know, it's all about finding that new angle or new take on the familiar sometimes. You can subvert it, you can reverse it, show it from a different person's point of view, uh, put it into a different setting or a time period, flip the genders, try mashing existing things up and see if that sparks an idea. It's uh, Alien meets Love Actually or Speed on a Segway. It's Romeo and Juliet with robots. You know, it wow. doesn't matter how dumb it is. Just think outside the box and let your mind run free. You never know what will actually click something over for you. I don't like Missy Elliott once said, flip it and reverse it. <laughs> <laughs> and to that, a good litmus test is whether people get excited when you tell them that premise, or do they just kind of nod politely? Are they inspired by your idea? Especially when it comes to TV writing, you need to be able to generate dozens, if not hundreds of episodes. So keep in mind that unlike movies, your concept is really just the launching pad for your show. It needs to be a generative approach, not some self-contained idea. Right. It's important not to think about it as a close-ended story like a feature would be. Uh, in TV, it just is so important to understand how every week something new and interesting and cool will happen. And another sort of tip or trick that I think is important is just making sure that it speaks to something. It gets to the heart of something meaningful, some kind of theme. Ask yourself these questions. Why are you telling this story? Why is it important for people to hear? And how is it personal to you? We've talked about that with pitching before, but it also helps with generating the story, finding that emotional, personal connection and how it's going to resonate with you and with other people. Yeah, I definitely agree that if you find that personal connection, I think however mundane that premise or that concept could appear, if you connect it to yourself and pitch it that way, people are much more enticed to lean in and, and really hear what you have to say about it. Yeah, you can draw on your personal experiences or just some little thing that you've always been fascinated or obsessed with. Whatever it is, make it personal. Just go down to a Wikipedia rabbit hole and then make it all about you. All right, let's move on to the next macro problem. What if the script I have feels like it has kind of low stakes and a lack of conflict? 
yeah, I think that's a really common issue for people to run into. And I think that the trick there is to look at the central dramatic question of the episode or the pilot of the show. Even the dramatic question of each scene. Does each character have clear and often opposing wants? Are there obstacles in the way? Does it matter if they fail? And then why do we care about that? And that also applies not just to the dramatic questions, but the character questions and the thematic questions as well. Definitely agree with what you're saying, but also having high stakes does not mean putting the world in danger every minute of the day. I think that's something people need to be reminded of, especially in the world of the MCU and the DCU environment that we are in currently. High stakes are stakes that matter with real lasting consequences for the choices that are being made by our characters. So make sure those stakes feel personal. Think about it this way. It's not about the size of the stakes. It's about how you use them. You know, <laughs> how do you impact your protagonist? Die Hard is a near perfect example of heightened stakes, not because the terrorists have some kind of nuclear bomb that can wipe out the entire city, but because they have kidnapped the protagonist's wife. So think of what makes the protagonist either he, she, it really lean in. Here's another problem we might be running into. Let's say you're writing, but you're not sure what should happen next. The important thing to understand here is that you should always be working from an outline or a beat sheet, some sort of broader story document before you jump in a final draft and write your scenes. And that's what's going to help keep you on track and not lose sight of the forest for the trees. So if you don't know what should happen next in your story, you probably don't have an outline. So you should spend some time going back and creating one. Even a rough beat sheet is better than nothing. So you should really know how your story starts and ends before you type fade in, and that's going to help you avoid this problem. Yeah, remember that TV writing is predicated on strong outlines. Throughout the breaking process in the writer's room, you'll go back and forth between the room, the network, the studio, and your own writing. So people at the top want a good idea of the shape of what you'll be writing before before you present that draft to them. So it's a good idea to emulate and prepare yourself for those habits even before getting staffed. So that means learning the craft of writing a good, strong outline. That does not mean you'll be verbatim retyping everything in a draft and be stuck in that little box. Feel free to diverge away from it if need be, but at the very least, prepare some kind of document for yourself as a guiding light. That way you won't be stuck wondering what should happen next during the draft stage. Right. And even if you're a person who's like, oh, that's not how I work. I prefer to just get in there and see what, what comes to me and that kind of thing. I mean, that's great if that works for you. Cool. But if you're going to be a professional TV writer, you're going to have to learn that system of writing the beats and the outlines and working in that way. So regardless of whether or not it's your favorite thing to do, it is something that you should start doing for practice if you want to do this as a profession. So here's another little tip or trick. Let's say you're in there writing and something isn't working or you are back at that stage of outlining or beating your story out and you get stuck and you just don't know what's going to happen next. Maybe think about what's the most surprising thing that could happen. Particularly, here's a good one. What's the worst thing that could happen for your character in that situation? Now, it might not ultimately be the best choice for the story, but at least it gets you thinking about the possibilities and taking bigger risks rather than playing it safe and boring. You know, a lot of people don't throw enough stones at their characters and then they end up letting them glide through without sufficient conflict or obstacles. So usually making things harder for the protagonist is going to be more interesting and compelling than not. You can just have the Kool-Aid man burst into the room. It's like, yeah. <laughs> it's definitely the most surprising thing you can do. <laughs> and another element you can look at when you're outlining and figuring out the next step are the buts and therefores, or in other words, the causality of it. 
Things cause other things to happen or should in your script. Your story should not be bouncing from one unconnected event to some other unconnected event. So one way of either figuring out the next step of your story or just avoid the issue of unrelated scenes is to go through your outline or your beat sheet by asking what's the connected tissue like therefores or buts. You can add, okay, so Jill is walking down the street, but she encounters her nemesis, Johan. That's a great name, Johan. <laughs> I kind of want to write a script about Johan. Anyway, you can either do therefores and buts, but if you're only connecting scenes with and then, it doesn't really create any forward momentum to a story, so watch out for those. Let's move on to the nitty-gritty of your script by talking about the characters, dialogue, and some of the pros. First of all, what if my protagonist isn't really interesting? Yeah, this is another common thing that comes up a lot. And it, the trick to this is empathy and engagement, creating a character that is relatable to the audience and that they care about. So we've spoken about this before on the podcast, but there are a number of little ways that you can make an audience engage with a character aside from just writing a great character. Now, there is obviously the simple fact of being perhaps the first person we see on the screen and the one we spend the most time with. But aside from that, you can for example, put them in danger. You can unfairly wrong them or make them the underdog with the chips stacked against them. You can make your protagonist uh, be struggling with some universally relatable thing. It's a search for love or they're overcoming grief. You can give them uh, some sort of superpower, not literally, but you know they could be just really good at something like smooth talking or fighting or poker, for example. And another thing you could do is make them sacrifice something important to them or sacrifice themselves for the sake of others. And those are all things that that tend to work fairly effectively at putting the audience on the side of your protagonist. It's also important to uh, notice the difference between empathizing with a character and liking that character. You can definitely empathize with villains. For example, the Joker can definitely empathize with the chaos that he's causing the city of Gotham in the Dark Knight. Yeah, a lot of people empathized with Killmonger, even though they didn't like him as a person because he was, <laughs> did some pretty bad things. Absolutely. Another element to make your protagonist or characters interesting is to make them be active and not just passive, especially that protagonist character. A lot of people's issues when it comes to story is making their protagonist reactive or passive. Things are happening to them rather than because of them. And this is often an issue when you fall in love with your villains and start making them more interesting than your main character. Put your protagonist in, let's say, no-win situations and see how they react. Try to add crossroads moment where they have to make a choice. Uh, one of the most iconic examples of that is from the Spider-Man comics where Peter Parker has to choose between saving a bus full of school children and saving the love of his life. The villain is the one who thrust upon him that crossroad, but he is the one who ultimately makes that choice. And the Dark Knight had a similar moment where the Joker forced Batman to choose between saving his love or Harvey Dent. He chooses Rachel, but Joker, having predicted Batman's move secretly switch the location so batman ultimately saves harvey dent and lets rachel die inadvertently yeah that's it's really important that your protagonist is the one making the choices other people shouldn't be making choices for them they can put them in uh, tough situations and throw obstacles in their way but ultimately the person we care about is the one who is making a decision and following through with it and along those lines, it's important for your characters, and especially your protagonists, to have clear goals and wants. So even if that character thinks they want something, but really needs something else, it should be 
clear and apparent to the audience what needs to happen to or for this character for the sake of the story. For example, say it's a man taking karate lessons who might think his goal is to become the best fighter and defeat his bullies in combat, but really he needs to find uh, the confidence to stand up for himself verbally and in social situations, things like that. All right, let's say my characters are too thin and not on the weight scale, but really they kind of feel the same. Uh, How do I solve that issue? I think it's so important, and I don't see this enough, is people taking the time to describe their characters properly when they're first introduced. Again, especially your protagonist. Take several sentences and tell us more than just what they're wearing or how attractive they are or their name and their age. You know, Really tell us about who they are as people. I think this is the one place where you can pretty freely break the rules a little and tell us something that we couldn't technically know just from having seen them. You know, If the characters just have a name and age, they're going to blend together on the page and have the reader asking who was that again? And just a super minor point, it also helps to make characters' names start with different letters and not sound too similar. You can easily list the alphabet at the top and just make up names as you go. I definitely agree that describing your characters in unique, interesting ways is something we've been hitting on multiple times in this podcast because it is really one of the key differentiations between you and other people. So on that same track, think about the best way to introduce your characters. If you have a very clear perspective on how they enter the action or how they behave in that moment or what they say or when they say it, you can reverse engineer it understand what makes that character unique throw them in a weird situation maybe they land on an alien spaceship or maybe they learn they have a terminal disease or maybe they win a jackpot how would they react Think of them as your sims, except with an actual purpose. (laughs) They have a purpose. It's to entertain me and waste my time. That's a great point, Alex. I think that uh, thinking about the situation that the character is in when we meet them is super important to not just who they are as people. So another tip or trick with your characters to make them interesting is to actually build them from the ground up to highlight and contrast and clash with each other. So rather than creating these characters in a vacuum and then throwing them together and hoping they work, they should be already created specifically with clear dynamics with each other in mind. Now, one way of doing this is finding what your protagonist's central character journey or question is, and then making the supporting characters kind of like the points on the compass for that. They are extremes to show what choosing that direction or the other looks like, and they're the ones around that character pulling them in all directions. So for example, example, a brand new medical intern at a hospital might be surrounded by a dedicated senior doctor who loves her job but spends so much time at work it puts a strain on her family. And then also there's this other doctor who's a jaded and burnt out specialist who kind of phones it in and just doesn't care anymore. So both of these represent paths that the intern could go down on their journey and provide natural points of conflict between these characters and our main character over events in the story. Yeah, that's especially useful if you're going for an ensemble type show. You want that vivid tapestry of characters. And things you can play on to sort of compare and contrast your characters include themes, goals, backgrounds, or perspectives. Along those lines, a little tip here is to figure out your character's point of view or worldview and how that informs how they interact with the world around them, the people around them, and the situations that they're in. A pacifist is going to talk very differently in the middle of a gunfight to an army veteran. Uh, A sexual deviant is going to have a very different way of flirting at a bar than a 40-year-old virgin like Steve Carell. And one more little trick that you can do is find comps 
or comparisons of distinct actors or personalities that you can kind of envision in your head and hear their voice when you write them. Could be Kevin Hart or Helena Bonham Carter, Princess Leia or Scarface. You know, even if you don't write that name on the page for the reader, it'll help inform how you write them. And even when you're pitching it, Breaking Bad is famous for its logline of this character is going to go from Mr. Chips to Scarface throughout the course of the show. You can also base your characters on existing people in the sense of hopefully if you're inspired enough about your own experiences to write a, a specific pilot, then maybe some of the characters are inspired by real people you like. I'm writing right now this pilot about a bearded uh, Australian guy called Richard, and it's completely <laughs> different than this guy I'm sitting across to right now. Is his nickname Dick? Yes, exactly. <laughs> so what if I've got great characters and a cool story, but the dialogue just sucks? How do you fix that? Well, one thing I like to keep in mind is that dialogue needs to have a point. People rarely, if ever, speak to say nothing on TV unless it's specifically to them for time, such as someone trying to distract another character during some kind of heist. And whether it's giving a piece of information or showing who that character really is, make sure what is being said should be said. And shorter is usually better. If your dialogue starts to go over two or three sentences, really rethink whether that extra length is warranted. And I think this idea of bad dialogue is kind of amorphous, so it's really useful to get feedback and pinpoint what exactly about your dialogue isn't working. It could be any number of things. It could feel unnaturalistic, like people wouldn't really say that. Maybe the characters all have the same kind of voice and sound the same. It could be full of unnecessary and boring everyday speech, like, hello, hello, how are you? Good. It could just repeat the same point too many times. So all of these things have different solutions and ways to tackle them, but it helps to break it down and figure out which aspect you need to focus on. Yeah, and if you're actually stuck in a loop and are writing that rote dialogue, take a break. Watch a movie or a show or read a book. Listen to people speak. Try to get away from the routine of whatever crappy dialogue you're writing right now. Try to find content about your genre and people discussing it. And like with polishes and rewrites, which we'll talk about in a minute, table read your screenplay or read it aloud to truly hear what it sounds like. You'll be able to listen and hear those clunkers when you hear them aloud because no one's going to be laughing and there's going to be an awkward silence. Right. And there's definitely a different flow to words on the page than to words said out loud. It might not look as good when you write it down, but it sounds great when people say it or vice versa. So just be aware of that. So here's another problem you could run into. Everything else is going great in your script, but just the, the prose, the action and the description is, is not working and you're not really sure how to put that on the page or verbalize that stuff. Well, one tip is looking at the sentence length. There's this very famous example from Gary Provost, who's this writing instructor and American author, about the sentence length. And I'll just quote that whole paragraph. And he says, this sentence has five words. Here are five more words. Five word sentences are fine, but several together become monotonous. Listen to what is happening. The writing is getting boring. The sound of it drones. It's like a stuck record. The ear demands some variety. Now listen. I vary the sentences length and I create music. Music. The writing sings. It has a pleasant rhythm, a lilt, a harmony. I use short sentences and I use sentences of medium length. And sometimes when I am certain the reader is rested, I will engage him with a sentence of considerable length, a sentence that burns with energy and builds with all the impetus of a crescendo, the roll of the drums, the crash of the cymbals, sounds that say, listen to this, it is important. 
That's awesome. I hadn't heard that before. Very good example of how to vary up your writing on the page. It's interesting to come to screenwriting, as a lot of us do, from having written in other creative ways, novels or poetry, things like that, because there's a lot that changes in that form. And I think it is closer to something like poetry or the, the, the simple, effective prose of Ernest Hemingway than really being way too over the top and detailed and descriptive. But at the same time, you want to communicate interesting ideas and not just bore the reader. Definitely agree that successful prose is efficient prose, so you can also vary your specific wording within that. Make sure you're not repeating the same words over and over again. Sometimes you don't realize you're doing it until you specifically search for those words within the document. It doesn't mean you should find complicated synonyms and $10 words, just that your writing needs to be varied. Also, be specific in your verbiage. Is that character staring at someone, or is she glancing at an object, or observing a scene, or deciphering text? And one last element is to read other scripts. Do you have a favorite moment from a show or movie? Seek out how they verbalized it on the page themselves and try to see if there are any, any lessons you can learn from them. And you can also find other source to build that vocabulary in other ways, maybe with specific emotion thesauruses, uh, such as the ones from Angela Ackerman and Becca Puglisi, or even online synonym finders. Find a way to build that language. Yeah, thesaurus.com is your best friend. Check it out. Let's move on to actual scene work. And what if my script or scene is too long or goes too fast or too slowly? Yeah, I mean, one common tip or trick you've probably heard before is just get into a scene at the latest moment you can and get out at the earliest moment you can. Now, that's obviously not a hard and fast rule, but it's going to get you in the right mindset for not wasting time at the beginning with a character knocking on a door and walking through it and opening it and saying hello and everyone greeting each other, you know, just starting in the action, getting into the thing that's interesting, and then also not, you know, wasting your time at the end of the scene, petering out of it, everyone saying goodbye and, you know, <laughs> I'll see you next Sunday and that kind of thing. You know, you can just really punch out on those strong lines of dialogue or actions or buttons on the scene. Another tip of trick is you can use more white space in the script to make something seem faster or leaner. You can write shorter sentences and paragraphs like Alex talked about, and vice versa. You can spend longer amounts of time on something that is more important and requires more detail in those key moments. Yeah, and as we discussed in PT90, our rewriting episode, if your script overall is too short, then it probably is a structural problem. So take a look at your outline and the number of scenes. Now, if your scenes are too short, then potentially you're not milking that juice out of the emotions or tension of the scene. Yeah, that's that's the opposite problem to you know having a scene that runs on too long is failing to live in the moment and make the most of this situation that you've set up and blowing through it too quickly and leaving the audience feeling disappointed they didn't get what they were promised disappointed. <laughs> but you know, if it is a bigger structural problem that you've got too much going on in your script, make sure each and every scene serves a necessary and integral purpose to the story. Uh, if you can go through and realize that you could probably remove it and don't lose anything from the story, then you probably should. You know, make sure you're tracking each of those through lines and seeing that they all properly arc and resolve. And you don't have too many or too few beats or scenes that is necessary for each of them. Here's another problem. What if the scene just 
sucks or is uninteresting or it feels like nothing happens in this scene. The first thing to look at is that you need to have scenes with some kind of dynamic and conflict between the characters. Five happy people sitting around a table agreeing with everything everyone is saying isn't conducive to a compelling scene. But what if one of those five happy people actually hates the other four and is trying to undermine every comment they make. That is conflict. And another way of introducing conflict through character is by using the old adage that in each scene, one character wants in on the scene while another character wants out of the scene. Yes, it's called 12 angry men, not 12 agreeable men. (laughs) Yes, uh, like Jesus. Here's another tip or trick for making your scenes more interesting is try to have something fundamentally change by the end of the scene from the way that things were at the start. So if a character came in looking for information, by the end, he or she should either get that information that they needed, uh, get bad or incomplete information, or perhaps not get the information in such a way that it still propels the story forward. You know, they're interrogating a suspect and they find out another lead that they can pursue instead uh, that might lead to that information eventually. So if an entire scene goes by and nothing about the pressing goal or want has changed even slightly, if it wouldn't be something you would include in a synopsis of plot, then it's probably a waste of time. You know, there's uh, also this other version called an up and back, where it seems like you make progress towards something only to bring us right back to the same place by the end of the scene, which technically could work, but it's just unnecessary and probably going to get cut by an editor anyway to save time. So try to avoid that too. You can also create tension between who can win the scene versus who loses the scene. And I don't mean in the context of characters playing a literal game, uh, more so who comes out of the scene on a high note. Maybe you have Jack blackmailing Jill because he saw her take a bribe during her presidential campaign. Well, Jill knows Jack is cheating on his husband, and surely he doesn't want the word to get out about the affair. That interplay can go back and forth for as long as you wish, but be aware that this was just a two-dimensional shape example of the dynamic. Obviously, people one-upping each other for five minutes isn't inherently compelling. What is compelling is the escalation of attention. Right. The shifting of power dynamics is something very important to a scene and to individual character interactions, so try to keep that in mind when you're writing. So another problem, what if there is too much or maybe not enough exposition in the script? One element that I found useful is either to think of the most interesting way to exposit things or distract from the exposition. So one rule of thumb is to have the characters do something really interesting if they say something really boring. It's mixing action with exposition. Uh, A simple tropey example of that is the villain explaining their plan to the hero, that's exposition, while the hero tries to find a way to escape their predicament, that's action. Uh, For example, let's say Phoebe kidnapped Chandler and is holding him prisoner in a cell because she needs to trade him for her own kidnapped twin sibling with in 24 hours. I want to read that fence wow. back. Yeah. Well, you could play that scene where Chandler is trying to look for some kind of weapon in his cell while Phoebe paces around trying to justify herself to Chandler, uh, thereby giving us exposition. We, the audience, will be living this scene through Chandler's perspective as he frantically tries to figure out a way out of the cell. We're leaning in because we want to know if he will succeed or not. All the while, Phoebe is giving us much-needed exposition as to why she did what she did. That is the mix of action and exposition that your scene could need to make it less by the numbers. Right, that's a good example. And I mean that it is a bit of a cliche, the villain explaining their plan, but think about how much more boring the scene would be if the uh, hero was just laying there doing absolutely nothing in the scene while the villain explained the exposition to them. I think that that would make it a hundred times worse. Definitely agree. And you can find ways to 
exposit the information in the most organic way. Uh, the villain explaining their plan to the hero is tropey specifically because 9 out of 10 times, it doesn't make any real world sense why they would do that, especially since the hero at some point will escape. Uh, so maybe it's about showing the world in a cool world building way, or maybe it's through action. Uh, in fact, to the point of exposition, I recommend a great article, which I'll link in the show notes, called 25 Ways to Kick Exposition's Ass, uh, which is a cool summary of interesting ways expositing information in unique and compelling ways. All right, so now we're going to look at some of the issues you might run into when you're rewriting or after the at least the first draft of the script is done. So what if the problem is that your writing really needs a polish or a punch up? It just feels rough. Well, one way to understand what really needs to be polished or punched up is by doing uh, table reads or reading your script out loud. So if you're making edits to lines, you can read them out loud to yourself to hear how they sound. And once you have a draft, also have that table read, or if you don't have any friends, use a great sounding computer voice. <laughs> uh, but to get true feedback after a table read, don't just have some kind of open forum. Some people are not comfortable voicing their opinions publicly with a group, especially if they go against what a vocal hive mind says. It's not something you can easily quantify or notice. You could have this one dude who starts championing your awesome characters, but in that process, they will inadvertently silence a few other people who would have pointed out that maybe you have some weak female characters. You're losing on that valuable feedback. So one option to solve that problem is to opt for some kind of anonymous feedback where people write in their thoughts in a communal box or there's some third party that collates all the feedback into one document. Make it your own version of a test screening. True honest feedback is better than faint praises. Yeah. Another thing I've found helps work in those table read situations and feedback sessions is asking specific directed questions to the group about what worked and what didn't work, particularly if you know there are, there are problem areas in your script that might need improvement. So you could ask, was the plot clear or did the pacing in the second act feel slow? So by calling attention to a potential problem yourself, I think people are more likely to want to chime in because you've kind of given them permission in a way and they don't feel like they're just being the first person to speak and criticizing you. Uh, one last thing, which Alex did mention a little earlier, is just to read a lot of professional TV scripts and screenplays and learn by osmosis. See how they set up their jokes and how they play their climactic scenes. Then go back to your script with an eye towards applying some of those techniques or at least holding yourself to that same standard on the rewrite. Here's another common problem. What if you've just got a lot of typos and grammatical errors in your script? How do you fix that up effectively? Well, the first thing is to notice those typos. And one trick to notice typos is to read your script backwards. Going backwards allows you to focus on each words outside of any context or flow of sentences. It doesn't work for everyone, but try it out and see if you notice any errors that way. Uh, another useful trick, and this is going to sound super obvious, is a spell check. Now, Final Draft and most screenwriting software don't have the best built-in spell checkers, so you could maybe copy and paste the content of that into a Word document or a Google Doc, which uh, do tend to have more up-to-date and useful spell check programs. Uh, some of these also have like a built-in synonym finder, which can be super useful as well. And one last step is if you don't have the time to proofread, 
ask a friend to do that. Especially if you have friends who are script coordinators, it is literally part of the job to find typos and errors. So you could pay them, or maybe just buy them dinner in exchange for proofreading your script or maybe some other favors. Oh we boy, don't judge. I don't like where this is going. <laughs> no, it's, it's a good point. I think that once you've read your own script over so many times, you just already have an idea of what it is in your head and you're not actually reading the words anymore. So it's great to have an outsider come in and take a look and point out those obvious errors that you've somehow missed. Always have an outsider come in. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. All right. So before we go, just another reminder that our paper tease competition is still open for submissions. If you have a TV pilot teaser of eight pages or less, it can be any format, any genre. You can enter that for free at paperteam.co slash teaser to potentially get feedback on air and win prizes. And that brings us to the end of our episode. So thanks so much for taking the time to tune in and listen. You can get all the show notes for this episode at paperteam.co slash 93. If you want to leave us a review, we would love that. You can do it at paperteam.co slash iTunes. All those reviews are going to help us find cool new people like yourself to tune into the show and build our little community. And another reminder, our sponsor, Roadmap Writers, has launched their inaugural Jumpstart Writing Competition. It's open to both original TV pilots and feature scripts, and the competition has 12 esteemed industry judges from tough companies like Circle of Confusion, Echo Lake Entertainment, Verve, Mosaic, and more. So to learn more about that and view their incredible prize packages, you can visit roadmapwriters.com and choose Jumpstart from the competition tab. And as always, I'm on Twitter at TV Calling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. If you have any thoughts, feedback, ideas, or questions to ask us for this podcast, you can send them to ask at paperteam.co. And what are we doing next week? Well, next week, we're going to be talking to composer Miranda Sacchetta about writing music for television. So in a way, I guess, how you can tell story without words. Tune in next week for that. It's going to be a real Paper Team musical. <laughs> oh, God, a musical episode. That'd be great. <laughs> we'll see if we do that.